Welcome everyone. My name is Jim Barton and I'm here with Reverend Abigail Conley. And this is another episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. Um, the point of this episode is for uh, Reverend Abby and I to have a chance to express our feelings and emotions about um, continuing to support the Black Lives Matter movement and also some of the broader issues of racial injustice that we're seeing in the current crisis, including um, the way the pandemic is being born, not equally by, by all people. Um, you just heard uh, a reading of the Canticle of the Turning, and so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Abby to talk a little bit about, about that reading. Yeah, so the Canticle of the Turning is um, a song version of the Magnificat written by um, somebody whose name I will add later because I do not remember, but that's okay. Um, Rory, Rory someone. Um, but it is a retelling of the Magnificat. So after Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, she here she's going to have a child. She says, yes, behold the servant of the Lord. She agrees to this. And then part of the kind of like, is this really going to happen? Um, is I'm gonna go visit my, my cousin Elizabeth. And if I find everything, um, she's six months pregnant, she's visibly pregnant. If I find things like the angel said, then I know this is true. So she goes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth and she finds Elizabeth six months pregnant, um, ready to welcome the prophet John and not that much longer. And so um, she says, she, she begins singing and she sings this song that begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. And from that Latin, we get the Magnificat um, and that's where the name comes from. And so that song is simply a retelling of that. Um, nothing that isn't in scripture, just something that's easier to sing for us, um, but very much continues, um, continues to name the work of God's justice in the world that will be made known through Jesus. I think it's especially powerful that um, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, we get this claim of what God will do. Um, it does set the stage beautifully for the, like, God is going to do this, this sort of justice for um, people who are poorest. And I think that idea um, of a new world that Jesus is going to bring about and a new world of justice um, speaks to um, our principles as Christians and um, what we, uh, what we, the way we see the change, or at least the way we should see change um, for justice, um, which is, frankly, uh, you know, there's that, you know, the arc of history is long that bends towards justice. That, that's not the Christian vision. Um, the Christian vision of what's to come is to totally wipe out the system of injustice, to destroy it, and to replace it with a system that's consistent with God's love and with God's kingdom. And I think in our world right now, um, those people who are calling for radical change, who are calling for a new world, and they're saying, I reject the injustice of this current system, that call should feel very familiar to Christians because that sounds like the call that Jesus was bringing in, in his ministry. Yeah. And even, even in our prayers, you know, Chalice still does a pretty traditional Lord's Prayer. And 
Um, we could talk about my feelings about Trinitarian language that isn't masculine for a long time. But with that, we also use the phrase, your kingdom come. And even when preaching at most, I talk about your reign. Because we are talking about a system, a governmental system that looks different, something that mirrors those things till our laws are more just and all these things that looks very different than what we have now. And I think it's important to recall, for me anyway, that Jesus disrupted comfortable systems, right? I mean, like Jesus, in, throughout the gospel, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is making people uncomfortable. And Jesus is speaking a truth that people are not willing to hear. And I frankly think as you and I, as two privileged white people who are straight, who are uh, Anglo-American, who uh, benefit in so many ways, are well-educated, um, you know, we need to be disquieted. And that means, one, we need to speak against racism to other white people. You know, we need, white people need to talk to white people about racism. Racism is perpetrated by the majority against the marginalized community, and it's a problem of the majority, right? But then also we need to listen to things from uh, our black and brown brothers and sisters that make us uncomfortable, that make us feel like, I don't want to hear this. That's, that's called prophecy, is that it makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And when we talk about Jesus unsettling a system, we're talking about a person of color unsettling a system, and one that was... He is talking to other people of color about the system that isn't working um, as people who were not in power, who were ruled by someone else. Um, so does this ongoing disruption of, of the systems that exist? Um, I think especially we're in a predominantly white church, not an entirely white church. And we are aware that one of the things that we are consistently being asked to do by black leaders is not just talk about racism when there are black people in the room and not just talk about racism um, when a black person is talking about it or a brown person. We, we talk about it very much among ourselves and when there's no one else around. And we talk about ways that we can address racism when we see it. Um, it, is, it is the very strange reality that we don't, the more power you have, the less able you know you are, um, or the less skilled you are in addressing kind of injustices, because you haven't had to do it for yourself. You haven't had to advocate. So even figuring out the like, how do I challenge racist assumptions, racist things within my own community becomes a point where we can at least educate each other and talk about things that we can do. Um, you know, one of my favorites. I had this. One of my favorite kind of ways of the confronting racism and sexism and those things is just the play dumb I don't understand and like make someone explain the joke they just told or the thing they just said. And at least often that's a way of confronting their own racism. That's also a tool I had to learn because guess what? If you have enough power, you, you aren't even familiar those tools are there. I had an experience I've talked about before, I think, where I was in Indianapolis and I was stopped by a White Castle. I always get White Castles when I'm in Indianapolis. And it was late, which is the appropriate time to buy White Castles. Um, and there were a group of young black men that came into the White Castle. And I, I will admit that I experienced some anxiety 
about their presence. It wasn't like super conscious. I didn't leave. I didn't do whatever. I didn't consciously do anything evil in response to their presence. But I will admit that I was a little bit anxious because there were those young black men happened to walk into the White Castle at the time. And um, then a police officer from the Indianapolis Police Department walked in. And when the police officer walked in, I felt my anxiety level decrease. Okay. It occurs to me that those young black men had the exact opposite experience I did. They went into a White Castle, which is a perfectly appropriate place to be late at night, as it should be. And they were fine. They, the middle-aged white dude probably did not distress them in that case. Middle-aged white dudes can certainly distress young black people often, for sure, in other settings, but probably not at a White Castle. Mm -hmm. um, and then a cop came in, and then their anxiety level rose. And I think I share this story because I think it is such an example of subconscious privilege and how you have to take the steps to really think about how are we experiencing life differently? Yeah. It, if you were to call the sheriff's office because there was a problem at Chalice, you would believe that the sheriff's office would respond and would address that problem. Right. Now, as a minimum, now, I don't, you wouldn't call the sheriff's office if doing so risked a person of color's life. So that's the first thing, right, is that you're careful to not do that. But then as a minimum, of course, if we see vandalism and we're going to call the sheriff's office so they can respond to vandalism or be or noted down or do whatever, at the very minimum, we need to know that, you know, this is an exercise of privilege. Mm -hmm. And it is one of those things that, you know, the only times I have called the police have actually been um, at my work. There have been two incidents of vandalism and one of um, a white guy on our property that he had clearly jumped a fence. Um, and that was its own thing. And he wanted a cool place to stay for the day. So like, I essentially did what he wanted me to do and called the police so they could go give him air conditioning and a meal that day. Um, cause that's what he wanted. So I'm like, okay, well, but even the act of calling the police, I think, um, you know, is something maybe because of my age that I don't do readily or easily. Um, and white people need to think about doing more often. You know, the one time I've dialed 911, there was somebody screaming in a way that they were in harm. And we were staying, it was, I was staying with other pastors in an Airbnb. Um, yeah. And so that's the one time, but it is the, it is the like, how do you think about this so that you're only doing, you're only acting when it's absolutely necessary. Um, and you're not, just behaving in a way that white people think think they should where it's like oh it's fine call the police they'll be here Reali realizing this might not be helpful at all and it might end up costing someone's life and it's that serious like it's 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 pointing a loaded gun at someone if, if you if you're calling the police on a person of color you're you're pointing literally pointing a loaded gun at them and so i don't know there might be times to do that but that's the, that's the way to think about it, right? Right. And I think for many of us, um, especially white women who consider ourselves liberal, you know, Amy Cooper is, is the very terrifying image. I do not have to personally work to not end up with my knee on someone's neck. Like, I cannot imagine a situation in which that would happen. I am well aware if I call crying, somebody shows up and does something. And, you know, there's even this 
written thing in our society that like a woman is crying, especially a white woman, we have to do anything we can to fix that. Um, And so that for me is the much more terrifying kind of look in the mirror of, but you need to not be that person. This thing that, that is much lower level and seems much, much less harmful than what happened with George, than George Floyd's murder. Right. And just so, and your point being is that it's, 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 you don't walk around every day saying, oh, I need to make sure I don't shoot someone who's unarmed, or I don't, I need to make sure I don't use unnecessary force when I'm arresting members of the congregation. That's not, that's not a problem that you have, right? In the same way that, like, your point is, it's, yeah. No, my point is that, like, but here's this thing that I could do if I call panic, especially as a pastor, like, oh, wow, what you need. Let's, let's get that. Um, and, and it's, it's wrapped up with all the historic issues of um, the ways that this wicked system that we are a part of um, oppresses people. And frankly, it gets into the, it also, also, I mean, that response of here's a poor crying white woman, we have to take care of her. Mm-hmm. It also infantilizes the poor crying white woman. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually reinforces all the systems. The system of patriarchy that you need to have is somebody with a gun come and take care of you and save you from this terrible black or brown person. And the deadly violence towards the black or brown person, mm-hmm. it creates, it, this is all perpetuating a system of wickedness that I think it is totally fair for us to say. It's not the same system that Christ was dealing with when Christ was speaking truth to the Roman Empire, but I think it is still a system of empire and of hierarchy that Christ literally was so willing to protest against that Christ was willing to be executed by the state to call out the wickedness of that system. And I think our system is as wicked. And I would say even our system that is wrapped in Christianity is that much more wicked for being wrapped in Christianity. Um, The Bible was used plenty of times to justify slavery, to justify racism, um, to justify all sorts of injustices against people. Um, and you know, we're, and we also wanted to talk, go ahead. Yeah, that's what I was saying. We're sitting here, we're, we're recording from Arizona. Arizona has a relatively, I would say a very low black population overall. Um, we know where redlining happened. Um, you know, South Phoenix is the black part of town for a reason. Glendale is incredibly diverse. We're in the shockingly white East Valley. And the farther east you get, the whiter it gets. We also yeah. know we're recording in a state that has 33 Native American tribes on reservations. And the Navajo Nation is partially in Arizona, um, as well as three other states. And they have one of the highest per capita rates of COVID-19 right now. Um, it's a community that has experienced systematic racism and dismantling of its culture and people. And part of the struggle, you know, there's not access to healthcare. There's not access to running water in as many as like 30% of the homes. So we're not talking, when you say wash your hands, we have this community of brown people who were destroyed in many ways by colonialism where washing their hands is not an easy task. And that is shocking 
and should be shocking and humiliating for us who are sitting here. Right. And we have to live with the fact that we will not necessarily have something we can do about it now. Mm -hmm. So in other words, part of what needs to happen in that situation is for us to just accept the wickedness of the system we have established. And it's too, it's too late. Mm -hmm. We can't get a pipeline of water. We can't, there's no, whatever, whatever maximum white savior complex you have in your subconscious. Yeah. You can't, it's not enough to respond to these issues you're talking about, about like running water, right. about marginalized people living in poverty. Like we can't fix that now. So there will people be people who will suffer and die of a virus that they don't need to because of a system that we've benefited from. And at this point, like in the next like few months, there's nothing we can do about it because of that. And that's the product of our sin. Yeah. And, you know, often, often I've talked about, we have this kind of individualized version of Christianity in the U.S. where it is my sin that I'm responsible for. And I am so much more worried about the sins that we all are responsible for and participate in. And, yeah. you know, I was writing a sermon one day, and when I started to say something about Jesus' sin, I was like, oh, well, I just theologically crossed into a different place, and I should probably <laughs> reevaluate a little bit. But that was, it came out of the reality that Jesus is in a system that is also broken. And so um, how you interact with Samaritans, how you interact with a Syrophoenician woman is all informed by that culture. So when Jesus calls the woman a dog, essentially, and she responds, even the dogs get to lick the crumbs, that yeah. is, that, that's its story rooted in kind of this racist system. Um, yeah. And so even if- And on the flip side. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was gonna say on the flip side, when Jesus talks to the powerful person, the rich young man, the only way for him to receive salvation is to give up all of his power. Mm -hmm. He has to surrender all of his power. And so we, in, in the, you know, when Pat does the uh, uh, worship and wonder, where are you in this story? In this story, we are the people in power. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we can achieve salvation is by giving it up. Mm -hmm. We can't hang on to it. He doesn't say, but make sure you keep enough back to, you know, right. to get to pay for your kids. college. Right. Um, you know? But I think when we begin talking about all of those things, like even people who work to be actively anti-racist, white people who work to be anti-racist and to amplify black voices and to talk to other white people and all of those things, we still have blood on our hands from all of the realities of racism. And right. I think that is where we very much run into the problem um, for white people of like, well, I'm guilty. It's like, yeah, you are. And we right. hope, our hope is that Jesus sets something else into motion, that there is a kingdom that looks different. But yeah, I'm guilty of racism. I am guilty of, of all sorts of people's deaths just by merit of participating in an unjust system. I can't get out of the unjust system either which is also one of the devastating things, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think the last point maybe to make is that this, you know, 
just because we don't have the answers doesn't mean we don't work for justice. Just because we don't see the end product, you know, um, that doesn't mean we don't work for justice. And we aren't allowed to just give up. We aren't authorized to be nihilists. And so um, we have to still do those things. Speak about racism to other white people. When possible, give uh, marginalized people's voice, lift it up and listen. Um, and then we have to be hopeful because frankly, our situation is better than many who are oppressed and they can't hope anymore because it's too much. So that's the other thing I think that we bring to the table is to be hopeful and to try and find a way to make things better. And I would say that one of the things that our world is most in need of from the Christian narrative right now is repentance and forgiveness. Like this ability to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm going to change the way I do this. And to add, with the help of God, I'm going to change the way I do this, maybe with the help of my community. That is huge. And that is something we do not know how to say as a culture. Right. Well, I think that's some good advice um, for us to think about and for us to go forward. Anything else on, on this one before we wrap up? I don't think so. All right, well, it's not a very cheery sign off, but it is, uh, it is our sign off. So um, um, we'll, we'll finish there um, and until next time, cheers. <laughs>